when you're so overworked, you stop loving what you do. You know, now we have our goals aligned with each other and we're really happy with, you know, our caseload and our balance and how things are going. We really want to be client-centered and make sure that, you know, they're getting all the options, that they're making intelligent choices. And we can kind of guide them, but ultimately they're going to trust you more and you're going to get a better result if they're involved in that process. That's Lauren Butler and Ashley Talene, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast, where I invite my favorite humans, the awesome, the up to something, and the extraordinary to come and share their story. I hope that you'll be left entertained, inspired, and moved to take action towards living your most powerful life. I am so excited for you guys to hear today's podcast. Ashley and Lauren are two female lawyers based in Denver and Boulder, Colorado, who in the past year opened their own firm specializing in criminal defense. On this episode, we discuss the criminal justice system, the realities behind drug legalization and decriminalization, why defense attorneys are the true white knights of the justice system, and how being a female lawyer can be your biggest advantage. Ashley and Lauren, uh, welcome to the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're really excited to be talking with you today. Yay. Um, Let's begin by each of you introducing yourselves and saying what you're up to. Um, So this is Lauren Butler. I am an attorney in uh, Colorado. Ashley and I are partners. We opened our own law firm um, earlier this year. It's called the Law Firm of Butler and Killeen. Um, and we're based in Denver, but practice all over Colorado. Um, and so I think Lauren actually pretty much said basically what I was going to say, but I'm Ashley Killeen. Um, and, you know, I think we've been lawyers for about six or seven years now. Mm-hmm. Um, And we're just really excited to be starting our own firm and have two strong women running it and being our own boss. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you so much. What type of law do you guys focus on? So we mostly do uh, criminal law. That's the basis of our practice. I am a former public defender. Um, I was a public defender for many years. Um, I knew pretty much right away when I was in law school that that's what I wanted to do. Got involved with the Colorado Innocence Project um, and basically just made my entire law school experience about helping indigent clients who couldn't afford an attorney. Um, Lauren had a little bit of a different path, so (laughs) she can tell you about that. I started off, um, on the opposite track. So Ashley and I went to law school together. Um, that's how we know each other. We were really good friends in law school. After law school, I went on the DA track. So I prosecuted for a couple of years, um, quite frankly, because I was very naive and did not realize what it actually meant to be a prosecutor. So I only lasted a couple of years, then went into private practice, um, did a little bit of civil stuff as well as criminal stuff, 
hated the civil stuff and have been focused on criminal defense ever since. What made you hate the the prosecuting side and make you switch to defense? So I became a prosecutor because I know that they hold the power and I wanted to be in control of, you know, doing what was fair and what was right and what was like a just result for, mm-hmm. for the cases and the defendants. After actually practicing in that world, um, it became very clear very quickly that I was one of the only kind of fair prosecutors who, you know, would dismiss cases when they needed to be dismissed. And if someone just kind of made a bad mistake, like I would give them um, a chance for what's called a deferred judgment out here where they can complete some probation and then get get the charge off their record. So it wasn't just so black and white conviction or not you know, no conviction. And everyone else around me in the prosecution world seemed to only be going after convictions. And it felt very unethical and very unfair. And that was so the opposite of why I became a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. So it's actually why I feel more comfortable. And I think being a defense attorney is kind of more aligned with what my original goals were um, as a prosecutor. It's really interesting because um, you would think being outside of the the system that the the white hat, the person wearing the white hat, the good guy is the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you naturally would think that if you want to do what's right and what is fair and just that you would be on that side. Um, so it's really interesting to hear you say that to really fulfill that, you need to be on the defense side, which is typically known as, you know, wearing the black hat, like maybe questionable, yeah. <laughs> trying to get people off that maybe shouldn't be get, getting off. Um, totally. <laughs> I mean, defense attorneys get a bad rap, man. But when you're actually in the industry and you see it firsthand, I mean, everyone who is not in the criminal law world, who I tell these our stories to, they're, they have the same reaction as you. You know, they assume that the prosecutors are, you know, the good guys and the defense attorneys are the bad guys trying to get murderers off, like with no loophole or something like that. Exactly. And it's really much more complicated and in depth and not quite as black and white as that. Well, I've also personally never felt, um, I've always been strongly committed to the idea of innocent until proven guilty. And I never thought that would be something that would be in question in the United States until the past 18 months. And I am so much more in a place of um, really getting where you guys are coming from as needing great uh, defense when I never thought that would be something that someone like myself who isn't a criminal and has one of the cleanest, boringest records possible— Okay. I would feel that I'm like, hmm, do I need to know a good defense lawyer? Because I don't know if I can accidentally (laughs) get myself in trouble. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I'm kind of the same way. I'm a total rule follower, like absolute 100% rule follower. I don't speed. I don't even have a traffic ticket. And so people are always asking me, you know, how I can defend these people who have done these heinous things. And for me, that's, it's, that's exactly what it's about. What you just said is that, you know, these people have constitutional rights. 
Not in every case, but in some cases, they actually are getting railroaded by the prosecutor Mm -hmm. and they need somebody to protect their rights. And, you know, for me, when I have somebody with a really serious case, it's not about just getting them off. It's about getting the right result. Yeah. So are they addicted to drugs? Do they need substance abuse help? You know, um, are they mentally ill and can't get the medication they need, which is something that we see pretty frequently in the job that we do. Um, and so my goal is not just get this person acquitted. It's let's let's figure out how we can help this person be a productive member of society. I honestly wish more people were asking that last question. How do we get more people to be productive contributors to society? Be- because it's, exactly. it's bigger than law. It's bigger than right or wrong. It's, you know, looking at the opioid crisis, it's looking at the homeless population that we have, it's looking at veterans who are struggling, it's looking at anyone who is currently being left behind in any way. And I, I, we talk about why we being the American community and the world at large, like why are things changing? Um, why are things maybe worse than it felt like they were before? And I think we're skipping over some of the bigger breakdowns in taking care of each other that used to be just part of, like, woven into the community or the family. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that if, especially in a system like, you know, the criminal justice system, if both sides kind of work together for this common goal, we would have so much better results and you know, more productive members of society. And it's just, unfortunately, not always that that case. Well, I think the other problem that we have, too, is that the resources just aren't there. Um, you know, I have clients who will tell me that, you know, the reason that some situation happened was because they couldn't get their mental health medication and they called and tried to get an appointment with their therapist. But because, you know, they were on Medicare or Medicaid or something like that, you know, it was backed up three months and they couldn't get in to see them. Um, The homeless thing is a really huge issue, particularly here in um, Denver and Boulder, the Denver Metro in Colorado. We have a huge issue with homelessness. Um, And there just unfortunately aren't a lot of resources. And I think, you know, if we were putting more resources into, you know, mental health facilities and shelters and um, trying to get people into housing, that's actually more productive than putting it into jails and prisons and um, things like that. Yeah, because then we go down an entire rabbit hole of like, what, what does jail really do? If we're still committed to that that question of how do we make everyone a better contributor to society, um, you know, there's so much um, research and 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 topics lately of do you really get rehabilitated in our current jail system and is it set up that way? Like one of the studies that I find really fascinating is the one about hugs and um, the psychologist that was doing research about how many hugs people need in a day. And when they took away the uh, ability to touch in jails, like even like if the priest Mm -hmm. would come in or the counselor, the fact that they can't give hugs anymore in certain um, states and prisons, it actually increased the, um, 
I don't have it in front of me, so we'll have to Google it and put it in the show notes, but it either increased the rate of returning to jail, like, or it increased the rate of like being punished in jail, like solitary or something else. Um, and Interesting. It's, it's a hug. It's free. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you know, I haven't read that particular study, but I'm not surprised by that at all. And I mean, I can tell you because I've been to different jails all over Colorado and there are certain jails, the newer jails where they really like, you're talking to somebody through a glass window mm-hmm. and there's, I mean, you can't even really give them a piece of paper to sign or anything like that. Um, at the Boulder County jail, um, cause it's kind of an older jail. They don't have it set up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you actually, I can put my hand on my client's shoulder, you know, if they're crying or yeah. whatever. And I think that actually the people in the Boulder County jail are doing better um, than the people in some of those other jails. And that may be part of the reason for that. Yeah. And also in jails like the Boulder County jail, they have, they house their inmates in these bigger pods where they have more interaction with each other. Um, You know, they're all kind of hanging out and eating and spending their, their days together and more interaction, like human interaction that way. Um, so I think that all kind of goes into the same concept, which is really important. Mm-hmm. Well, earlier, um, Ashley, you mentioned the Innocence Project. Do you want to explain what that is and how you got involved? Sure. So um, when I first started in law school and I went to the University of Colorado Law School um, here in Boulder, um, I was looking to, you know, find some some program, some way to volunteer to help out. And I came across the Colorado Innocence Project. Um, in Colorado, at CU, it's now called the Corey Wise Innocence Project, who's one of the Central Park Five. And I can talk a little bit about that, too, but um, why that changed and sort of um, how he got involved. But when I was going to law school, it was the Colorado Innocence Project. And basically what they do is we take, um, as law students, under the supervision of licensed attorneys, um, we take cases where people have been convicted of pretty serious crimes and are spending a significant amount of time in prison, but they have a claim of actual innocence. So there's been new DNA tests or, you know, new evidence has come in. Um, that they didn't have when they were prosecuting the case, things like that. And we essentially review their cases and try to get that evidence to the court um, so that we can fight their conviction um, if we believe that they're actually innocent. And when when you were part of it, what were some of the results that you saw? Well, I mean, so I will tell you that when you're doing a post-conviction case, um, prediction, particularly a wrongful conviction case, they can take years. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> most of the cases that I was working on in law school are probably still pending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I unfortunately wasn't able to see any of the cases that I was working on through to the end. But, um, you know, once I graduated, you pass them on to a, a different law student who mm-hmm. just keeps plugging away at it. So, but I mean, I think I, I, in the news a lot, you know, over the past couple of years, I think people have been seeing um, some of these 
wrongful convictions overturned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking about the Central Park Five earlier. That's a perfect example. Um, that those were the five African American boys in New York um, who were wrongfully convicted of raping a jogger in Central Park. Um, and they just had a actually really great television series called When They See Us yes. um, come out. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. I sobbed the entire time I was watching it. <laughs> um, so I would encourage uh, your listeners to check that out if they're interested in it. But um, Corey Wise was one of the Central Park Five. And after he got compensation for his wrongful conviction, he pledged a percentage of that money to go back into the system to try and help others that have been wrongfully convicted. How amazing. Um, so, yeah, so he donated a whole bunch of money to the Colorado Innocence Project. So then it was renamed the Corey Wise Innocence Project. Um, and I actually had an opportunity at the dedication ceremony to meet him and have a pretty substantive conversation with him. And it was just a really life-changing conversation. I mean, he was so articulate and smart and humble and positive despite what had happened to him. Um, and it was a really amazing thing to see. So I'm, I'm really excited that people are starting to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully that will help people understand, you know, when some of these other wrongful conviction cases come up. Um, so yeah, that was really powerful to me. Yeah. Even just to think, you know, how many people will be wrongly accused for such a heinous crime for so long and like, and want to give back. I mean, it's, I think it's, it, that alone speaks to his character and I don't know. I just think it's amazing that there are people who are, who deal with so much that they don't deserve and to still be there and wanting to give back and make a difference and not just take the money and go hide on a beach for the rest of their life. Like it's, um, it's really honorable. And I'm glad that those people are, are in our society. Well, I actually had, so I had, there's another pretty, if you're in Colorado, you know about another case, Timothy Masters. Mm -hmm. Um, who was also wrongfully convicted when he was a teenager. And I also had an opportunity to speak with him. And both him and Corey Wise, I asked them the same question. I asked them, you know, what was it like to be in prison knowing that you were innocent? And how did that sort of affect? Were you angry? You know, what, what was going on there? And interestingly, they both gave me very similar answers. Um, and that was that, no, they weren't mad. And had they been mad and bitter, they probably wouldn't have made it um, out of prison ever. Right. Um, And so they chose, both of them chose to be positive and just hold on to hope that their convictions were going to get overturned. And ultimately, um, fortunately, that's what happened for both of them. I just like that it also is a great reminder for everyone who, like, we're so good at making our circumstances be so huge and monumental for wherever we're at from our perspective, right? Whatever we're dealing with. And to think that there are innocent people who are in jail for things that they didn't do that have to deal with everything that creates, how it completely changes your entire life and the lives of everyone that you care about. And if they can get through it and be positive and come out of it and 
get back into control of, of their destiny. Everyone, the rest of us who are not dealing with those extreme circumstances, like look, think about what you can do right now. What exactly? It puts, it puts our lives and our experiences into better perspective mm-hmm. um, when comparing it to these stories and these struggles and, you know, uh, things that some of these people have had to go through and have prevailed and is now, are now, you know, doing very positive and influential things with their stories and their experiences. So it's kind of beautiful stories that uh, are few and far between, I think, unfortunately, but when you do hear these stories, they are very inspiring. Yeah. What, what made you guys want to be lawyers in the first place or go to law school? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we actually both had prior careers before going to law school. Um, and interestingly enough, we were both working out in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles at the same time. Um, for me, I was a video game producer for the majority of my time out in L.A., And, you know, being in the entertainment industry, it was just, it was fun. I was out there for about five and a half years, um, but it ultimately was just so superficial and so surface. And after five and a half years, I kind of looked back at my time out in LA and in the entertainment industry, and it was kind of all fluff. I didn't really have any significant relationships or friends or you know, a future career. It was just kind of bouncing around from one party to the next, you know, entertainment meeting. And I just wanted to do something more with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had what I now dub my quarter life crisis. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's an important growth period. Everyone should go through it if you haven't yet. <laughs> A lot of positivity came for for me, Um, but I ended up, you know, searching for something more, and I actually applied to the Peace Corps and was rejected because at the time they had very little funding, um, and I, apparently being a video game producer, did not have many skills that I could (laughs) offer to to the Peace Corps. I don't think I ever knew that about you. Yeah. (laughs) And so my recruiter very kindly um, and gently suggested that maybe you go volunteer some places and get some skills if this is really something that you want to do, which kind of got me into volunteering for, you know, wildlife places and environmental places, which then in turn made me want to become an environmental lawyer, which is actually the reason why I went to law school. Um, but then the first day of my criminal law class, I immediately switched courses and realized that criminal law is what I wanted to do. So that's my very long, long story of how I ended up a lawyer. Not at all. <laughs> so, but <laughs> before we move on to um, Ashley's story, I want to know, like, what happened in that class? Like, what did you see or feel? Like, what was it? Yeah, so it was the very first day of my criminal law class. And I remember my professor for our reading assignment that week was um, we read all of these cases about really brutal and heinous crimes, like really explicit murders and sex assaults on children and things like that, where all of these defendants 
who were very clearly guilty, got off on technicalities. And then we had a very interesting discussion about, you know, how does that make you feel? And a lot of people were like, well, it's the government's burden to, um, you know, which is absolutely accurate to do everything correctly because the stakes are so high here. So if they don't live up to that burden and if they mess up along the way, then the just result is a dismissal or a retrial or something like that. Um, and, you know, that is really what kind of made me want to become the, the prosecutor that I wanted to be was I wanted to make sure that people who did these heinous and horrible things were held accountable appropriately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the cases were tried um, properly and the evidence was gathered ethically and constitutionally um, because when the stakes are so high, um, you know, people should be held accountable for their actions. And it was really disheartening to be reading all of these cases and these stories of these people who got off on these technicalities because it wasn't done properly. So for me, that kind of changed my whole perspective. And that's what made me want to become a prosecutor and go into criminal law. Very cool. Um, Ashley, what, how did you become a lawyer? So as Lauren said, we both had prior careers. So I was living in LA and working as a stage manager for Disney Entertainment Productions. Um, I did that for several years. It was a fun job. Um, just like Lauren said, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed all of the people that I worked with. But, you know, even for me, even in high school, I had always been very sort of civically engaged, mm-hmm. um, very political, um, very active in the political process. And um, much like Lauren, I just decided at some point that I wanted to do something a little bit more um, substantive. Um, and I actually went to law school. <laughs> when I went to law school, I thought two things. So first is I, w- I went to law school thinking I was going to become a politician, um, which I can probably never be now because I've been a public defender and everybody will use that against me. Um, but the other thing that I went into law school knowing was that I absolutely didn't want to be a trial lawyer. <laughs> and now I love being a trial lawyer. <laughs> so, yeah, trial is actually probably one of my favorite things. Um, I love being in court. I love making arguments. <laughs> all that good stuff. So yeah, for me, I got involved in mock trial and that's what really um, sort of made me uh, reevaluate what kind of law I wanted to practice and what I wanted to go into. Well, I imagine that trial, being a trial lawyer speaks to the, the politician who likes to debate in you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very, and yeah. It's, it's, there are definitely, um, I've noticed there are some skills that you need as a trial lawyer that you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, for example, when I was a stage manager, you know, and for, um, those of you who don't know what a stage manager does, basically we're, you know, on live shows, movie premieres, stuff like that. We're in charge of everything. So the entire technical crew, all of the actors, performers, customers, you know, we're basically running the ship. And, you know, one thing that I learned um, being a stage manager is how to, you have, you have to talk to different people 
with different personalities differently um, in order for them to respond. So, you know, that really translates with the clients that we have in criminal law as well. And I always have people ask me, you know, how on earth did you go from being a stage manager to a criminal defense attorney? Like, um, that's just crazy. But in fact, there are actually quite a few similarities between the jobs. So, I don't think people give lawyers enough credit for all of the um, the organizing, all of the homework, all of the what you don't see at court that you have yeah. to to do. The like you mentioned, the influence, the preparation, like how you are going to tell this story so that it lands for the people who are deciding whether they're on the jury or some other setup, depending on what type of case it is. But um, it's like, it's really, it's fascinating because very much like a show, when you're, when you're speaking in the courtroom, that's what, it's like a, it's like an iceberg, right? It's just like the tip of everything else that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I would say too, that a lot of people don't realize about lawyers and particularly criminal defense lawyers is we have to be experts in everything Mm -hmm. because we get, you know, cases that have DNA. We have cases where you're dealing with blood spatter. We have cases where you're dealing with, you know, fingerprints, fingerprints. Yeah. All this type of, you know, technical evidence, forensic evidence. Yeah. And so you really, you know, I, I mean, I had a case too, where I actually had to become an expert in what it was like to be homeless. Yeah. And I had to become an expert in one of my cases, um, about asbestos and, um, you know, the dangers and how you can, how you have to properly remove it. And so it just, it all depends on the nature of the case that you have in front of you. Well, being a lawyer is on my list of alternative career paths that I keep, I've thought about <laughs> my whole life and you guys are, are definitely selling me more on it than not. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> <laughs> The um, I I encourage all of the clients because I'm also a a coach and a consultant for personal business or finances. And um, I encourage every one of my clients to do the strength finders uh, test. I don't know if you guys have taken this at all, but it, it says that there are 34 strengths that humans have and they rank them based on this test you take. And they, their basic philosophy is lean, lean in on what you're good at and do without thinking and do naturally versus spending all of your time trying to like fix your weaknesses. Because most people, that's what they do. And my mm-hmm. number one strength is learning. Like I am such a nerd. Like I don't care what it is. I like to learn about it. So the fact that you guys are like, yes, and asbestos and this, I'm like, ooh. <laughs> So little tangent, um, I would love to talk about like how, how law and justice are changing, um, in Colorado, since that's where you guys are, are experts, um, Mm -hmm. in particular with how much, um, laws have been changing with, uh, Colorado being a leader in legalizing drugs and being Mm -hmm. seen as a progressive state that's really looking at. I guess, decriminalizing things in general, it just with drugs being the, the biggest thing that has been getting notoriety? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, 
not a hidden uh, story that Colorado was one of the first to legalize marijuana. And the way they did that was they first started by decriminalizing it, where, um, you know, if you were caught with marijuana or using marijuana, it would be a fine and, you know, not not a crime where you would get punished. Um, and then that slowly kind of worked its way into becoming now part of our Colorado Constitution. And we really, you know, led the 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 story, the force in that, and is now being uh, replicated in many other states. Um, it's interesting from our perspective because everyone is like, oh, weed is legal in Colorado. You can do anything that you want when it comes to to marijuana. But we actually still get a lot of marijuana-related criminal cases because what people don't realize is that there's a lot of re- regulations it's very complicated, a lot of laws that go around it, what you can do, what you can't do. Every county has their own individual regulations and laws. So, you know, some counties, you're allowed to grow it in your house, but the odor of marijuana can't waft past your front door, which, you know, is impossible. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's laughable, but that's kind of how certain counties are trying to still fight back against this, even though it's legal. And so we get a lot of cases where it starts off as like kind of a very minor, you know, odor crime where the odor of marijuana comes out and then they go into the house and they realize, oh, you're actually growing a lot more um, plants than you're legally allowed to. And you're selling them to, you know, selling your weed, your product to all of these other people illegally, not through, you know, the legal process. Maybe you're selling them across state lines. So it grows and it snowballs. And then these people are facing mandatory prison time, not county jail, but actual prison time with felonies for weed charges. So it's really interesting to see that, you know, it's not just, oh, it's legal and totally fine. Yeah, but one thing I will say that Colorado has done, which I thought was a really smart move um, on the legislature's part, is they've separated out all of the drug convictions from regular crimes. So, you know, with felonies in Colorado, we have class one through six felony, you know, one being a homicide a six being, you know, some sort of major property crime or something like that. Um, But now we also have what's called a, you know, a drug felony and a drug misdemeanor. And the reason that they decided to separate those out was because they wanted to start looking at the drug cases as more of a public health issue rather than a criminal issue. And so um, if you're convicted or plead guilty to one of the drug charges, um, first of all, there's a presumption that the judge is supposed to give you probation. So the judge, theoretically, according to the law, is supposed to exhaust all forms of treatment before they sentence you to jail or prison. Um, the length of the sentences is also smaller mm-hmm. um, than regular crimes. Um, and there's really, they're trying to have a focus on treatment. So I, I, I personally um, am really happy that they did it that way. I think it is um, better 
Um, I think it is helping people get treatment, you know, when they otherwise might not have when all of the drug cases were lumped in with other, Mm -hmm. you know, regular, like actual violent crimes and stuff like that. Um, So that is one thing that Colorado has done that I think has really been helpful um, in terms of, you know, drugs and the drug issue. Yeah, I was really impressed when I think it was uh, Illinois that recently did a, a a big move also for decriminalization of drug crimes, and I thought it was really interesting how they split the all the money that would be moved to a lot of the resources that you guys spoke to. So giving money to um, homeless rehabilitation, giving money to drug rehabilitation, giving money to um, having um, resources to keep people out of jail so when they did get you know arrested for something the paths were like here's your eight steps before it becomes it goes to trial basically um right so it was interesting that they brought in like such a big community such a big group from different parts of the community to figure out like how do we tackle this and it was just cool from my perspective to see um leaders who were committed like we started at the beginning like committed to solving the issue versus just getting more convictions and like points on the board. Yeah, I think it's really important. And like Ashley uh, spoke about, you know, the the judges are supposed to sentence these offenders and exhaust all other possible alternatives before they put them in prison. I think that's really important because it's no um, surprise that, you know, our prison systems are, incredibly overcrowded Mm -hmm. and um you know if addiction is a disease and if that's the only thing that you have that you that you did wrong is succumb to this disease when there are treatments out there there's um you know all of these resources that are available that could be more appropriate than just a, a prison sentence um you know our judges here are they're required to exhaust all of those other remedies and all of those other possibilities, sentencing alternatives before they start overcrowding the prisons with people who are just dealing with, you know, drug addiction and these, this disease that they're trying to battle. And probably could be productive members of society if they get the help that they need. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, um, are you guys maybe for Colorado, do you know the statistics for how many, you know, people in jail or in the criminal system are like related to um, drugs or drug addictions or abuse in general. Because I'm, as I, I imagine that it crosses over so many other crimes. Absolutely, um, and I don't have specific numbers, um, unfortunately. But what I will tell you is that in my experience, um, and particularly, you know, as a public defender. Um, when I was representing indigent clients, I mean, all of that crosses over. And, you know, the other thing that you see a lot is people who have very serious mental health issues Mm -hmm. that aren't getting the treatment that they need that are then self-medicating with the, these illegal substances. And it's actually just making things even worse for them. Um, Because not only do they have a mental illness that they're not being treated for, you know, from the get-go, now they're adding all of these, you know, substances on top of it, and it's making their behavior more erratic and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, you know, I 
like I said, I don't I don't have a specific number, but I would say at least two thirds of the people in the criminal justice system have some sort of substance abuse issue. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, another thing that Colorado has done that's I think has been really productive and really great is many of the jurisdictions here have started their own um, started a, a court run um drug intensive treatment program or addiction in tr- intensive probation, um, some sort of one of these sentencing alternatives that I spoke about earlier. For instance, I used to be a prosecutor up in Vail and we had um, a drug court and DUI court, which is a very, very intense probationary sentence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these, these, and you, you have to qualify, you have to be accepted and it, you have to have like, for instance, multiple DUIs before uh, you can be eligible for a program like this. But it basically keeps you out of um, prison and jail for these very lengthy sentences that could be um, a a possible sentence for these crimes. And instead, it puts you in this very intensive probationary um, sentence, probationary period, where you're meeting with your probation officer. You're meeting with your, you know, drug treatment uh, person multiple times a week. You're going into court with your whole group um, who's also in this uh, drug sentencing court or DUI sentencing court. And they also, a lot of these jurisdictions have um, these specialized programs for mental health, for veterans. Uh, mental health veterans, very specialized issues that are at the root cause of these crimes. And I think Colorado is very progressive in that sense. And most of our jurisdictions do offer those alternatives, which is great. And I will say, um, you know, back when I was a public defender, I was on one of the treatment teams for a drug court as well um, here in Boulder County. And it really is because Every decision that we make, we make as a team, mm-hmm. right? So you have a public defender representative, you have a DA representative, you have a judge, you have the probation officer, you have the person's therapist who's been working with them on their treatment. And if they have a slip up, it's not an automatic like, okay, now you're going to prison. Like we will sit down as a team and talk about what we can do to help this person get back on track. Yeah. And so like Ashley said, um, I was actually the DA representative on my team when I was a, when I was practicing as a prosecutor up in Vail, Colorado. And that's exactly what we did as well up there is we would all sit down as a team and figure out what this person actually needs to get back on track versus just kicking them out of the program and putting them in jail. And then the, what I find fascinating about this um this process is that I imagine that there are people in this program who that's the most number of people who have ever cared about them in their lives. Uh It's so true. And, you know, they've been in front of a judge so many times in their lives and that judge is always lecturing them and telling them everything they did wrong and sentencing them to, you know, sending them to jail and in this situation, it's reversed. The judge becomes more of a mentor and your cheerleader and, you know, showing respect for you. And this is very often the first time that a lot of these people have been respected and praised and cheered on by a group of professionals who 
are usually kind of just beating them down and telling them everything that they've done wrong, it's a very positive experience for them. And it actually has lowered recidivism rates very significantly. And for people who don't know what that means, that's repeat crimes and repeat jail time? Yes, Yes, correct. Um, Yeah, and it just makes, like, obviously you guys get involved at a point where the crimes have already committed and often committed multiple times at that point or multiple convictions. Um, It just makes you wonder, like, what could we be doing as a society where you get five, six people on your team at the beginning or <laughs> like way or before. Yeah. Um, I have quite a few friends uh, who are part of uh, CASA here in, in Orange County, oh, the yeah. court-appointed uh-huh. special advocate for foster kids. Yeah. And, you know, Orange County, California has one of the highest discrepancies in income in the entire U.S. from people making hundreds of millions of dollars a year to people like living homeless um, all blocks away. And... It blows my mind that there right now we have um, like one CASA for every 10 kids that need it. And yeah. it's just, it's crazy to me how many, how many kids in America are in foster care that the, it's like 70% chance that you're going to end up in the criminal system if you're a foster yeah. kid. And like, it's kids. Like, okay. I guess, it, I guess a lot of it comes down to what you believe humanity is. Is humanity na- like naturally good or naturally bad, right? <laughs> that can dictate yeah. how people um, address humanity um, as a thing. So where, where do you guys fall on, are people naturally good and there, there are ways to make everyone a good citizen? Or are you, like, where do you fall on that concept? Well, so look, I mean, I have had a couple of clients in my career as a lawyer that are just, they are just bad people, but I find that to be very few and far between. Um, I think that most people, um, you know, end up in the criminal justice system because of, you know, something that happened to them in their past or something that they're not dealing with. Um, that's mostly what we see in the criminal justice system. I have this big thing with veterans, which just drives me nuts because you see these people who have fought for our country, who come back, who have PTSD mm-hmm. and some pretty significant mental health issues. And they end up getting caught up in the criminal justice system because they can't get the help that they need. Um, and so I'm a huge proponent of, trying to get to these people before they end up in the criminal justice system. Um, I think that's really important. Um, And that's why, you know, in my career as a lawyer, I've been trying to get involved with drug court and veterans court um, and all of that kind of stuff, because I think, and, and, you know, you're right that once they hit drug court or veterans court, that means that they've already been, you know, caught up in the criminal justice system. So one thing that a couple of counties are doing here in Colorado is um, they're piloting a program called diversion, which essentially means that the first time you pick up a crime, um, instead of forcing you to take a plea deal or something like that, um, they send you through a restorative justice program. Um, and then if you successfully complete that, um, and do whatever treatment or whatever they think is necessary, you actually don't end up with a conviction. That case will get dismissed and you could seal your record and basically get a fresh start. 
Um, so I think that's definitely a start. Um, I think, um, you know, I live in Boulder County where there is a very, very, very significant homeless population and a very significant mental health population, um, much more than other counties in Colorado, I think. Um, so one of the things that they're trying to do is they're trying to train police officers, like specific police officers in sort of de-escalating mental health situations um, so that if they get called out um, to something, you know, to, to an incident that's very clearly mental health related, um, you know, how can we de-escalate that situation so we don't have to arrest that person? Um, how can we get them treatment instead? Um, and in addition to that, you know, Boulder County is also piloting a, um, what's, what's called path to home. So a way to get into housing for homeless people. Um, and I have to say, I wish I, I should have looked up this article before we started talking. There was just an article in the paper a couple of weeks ago about this program, this, um, apartment complex where they're housing, you know, these homeless people trying to get them back on track and, in the, I think it's been going since 2016, I want to say. I could be wrong about that. But um, in that entire time, the police have never been called to the apartment complex. Nobody has ever been arrested at the apartment complex where these people are living. Um, and so I think it's, you know, just piloting this program, you know, and what's happened with it shows that if we can get some of these people off the streets and into housing, it re they really can be productive members of society. Um, so I think, you know, Colorado is doing some things to help that. Um, but I think we could also be doing more to get these people before they enter the criminal justice system. Yeah, I think it's important to, because, you know, where Ashley and I come in, we, and from our perspective and our experience, we're kind of at the back end, like she said, we need to figure out what is going to be the best way to implement some of these, um, you know, resources and opportunities and changes on the front end before it gets to the point where Ashley and I have to get involved. Mm -hmm. I just heard uh, on NPR recently, they were talking about a, a local, um, like, path to home type of concept here. And in the first year, they did comparisons with how much it costs taxpayers when homeless people go to the ER uh, from right. for reoccurring, um, you know, everyday medical conditions to uh, accidents. And those who have been placed in homes, if the home costs, say, $13,000 a person for a year, um, their medical bills would have been, without being in the home, 30000 so just the fact that they all are also healthier, going to the ER less, like you can imagine if you have a cold or a bad flu and you're homeless, you'd rather sleep in a bed and get well than sleep wherever and you'll be sick Absolutely. longer. So just the fact that you can go to a house, recover, like actually, you know, what we take for granted all the time, um, they were just arguing that from a tax dollar perspective, we're saving money by making sure people have a home. Just on the medical side, I can only imagine yeah. the additional benefits in regards to um, the legal and criminal side of a community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, the other thing that I've heard from the homeless population too is, uh, you know, the apartment, you know, when they're placed in an apartment, it's 
actually a safe place to leave their stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and people don't even think about that. Um, you know, sometimes my clients get caught up in, you know, incidents that end up in the criminal justice system because, you know, they're sleeping outside and somebody walked by while they were sleeping and took all of their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and then they have to, they either lost a court date that they had and so they don't show up or, you know, they have to start all over in terms of getting housing because you have to have certain documents in order to get housing. Yeah. Or they, you know, don't, don't show up for their court dates because if they show up for their court dates, they have to leave all of their belongings, their entire lives outside of the courthouse unattended and people regularly steal all of their stuff. So then, They don't show up for their court and then a bench warrant issues and then they get, you know, arrested. So it's a really terrible cycle that's hard to break. Yeah. One of my biggest pet peeves is how hard we make it for disadvantaged people to exist in the systems that we've made. Um, I had a personal experience where I was unemployed for a while. I filed for unemployment, which I had never done before. I had no idea what I was doing. And... Like I, I sat there so frustrated with like how to apply and how to like use the phone and like how to pick the right button. And I'm like, okay, I have a master's degree. Like this is like, yeah. <laughs> if I can't figure out how to apply for, for unemployment and to fill the paperwork out correctly so that I was getting, you know, whatever the check is showing up on time. Like what end the fact that I'm stubborn and like know that this isn't right. And so I'm going to fight through it because I'm determined. Like this, like I, I had to do all of this just to, to get to the right place. Like what is somebody doing who is less confident, doesn't know, thinks they might be doing it wrong, is already intimidated by the system as it is. Right. Like what? Like who who made this? Like, who is the person that designed this? Because we need to yeah. have a conversation. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and I totally hear you because I am terrible at that kind of stuff. <laughs> I know Lauren and I kind of both are. And I agree with you 100% um, that, you know, it, it's, you're exactly right. How do we expect these people who are dealing with all sorts of other issues that we don't even think about to navigate um, this stuff when we can't even, you know, fairly figure it out ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one thing that that they've been doing in Boulder, um, the municipal court here who deals with a lot of the, the sort of what I call homeless crimes, um, they actually created a position called the homeless navigator. So it's a person that will help um, our clients get the documents they need um, get to where they need to go and actually fill out the paperwork. In certain instances, they'll actually keep all of that documentation so that, you know, our clients don't have to worry about it getting stolen or misplacing it when they're out on the streets until we can get them housing. Yeah, the courts will keep the original birth certificates, social security cards, things like that, and then give copies to um, the, the person so that they can use it, but they don't have to run the risk of losing the originals. Yeah, I mean, it just, just I get stressed out just having to go through like traveling, carrying all my stuff all the time, and yeah. like, you know, I was just in I was just in Europe for Powerful Lady stuff, which was awesome, 
And I kept trying to plan my days because I was jumping from like friend's house to a hotel to this and that so that I could drop all my stuff off so I could like be free and like have a normal day. And yeah, that was me on, you know, a work trip slash vacation. <laughs> like this wasn't, yeah. <laughs> I, this wasn't survival. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't any of those extreme circumstances. I was never threatened or hungry. So it's just a, we don't take in consideration like things that are just a pain in the ass. Um, for like when we have to do it partially, let alone worry about it every day, every day. Absolutely. Well, and I, I think that that's part of the problem and that maybe we would be making a little bit more progress in getting to these people and helping them out before they end up in the criminal justice system. But there's a lot of people, you know, who just aren't involved in the criminal justice system who just don't like they don't even think about that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like it doesn't even occur, occur to them, you know, that. And and then when you talk to people about it and you say, well, hey, do you ever think about this or what about that? They're like, my God, I never thought about that. That must be really hard, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think awareness is something that could be helpful, too, is just making people, you know, sort of think about some of these things in the first place. Because, you know, a lot of us just go through our, you know, daily motions and do what we're going to do that day and, and don't even think about, you know, People who have to, you know, sort of think about where they're putting their stuff or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, just to, you know, run a simple errand or complete something that you need to do. Go apply for an apartment. Go show up to court. And you have to leave every single belonging that you own, that you live off of, outside, unattended. Um, You know, that's something that not all of us need to deal with or think about on a daily basis. So, yeah. I went, I actually think I brought Jordan with me. There was um, an experience that a local church was doing to get related to um, refugees. And they did this really cool exercise because it was so fast and you got it so quickly of just a glimpse of what it feels like to be a refugee. And they went through, um, you know, okay, like you can only take, what are the three things in your house that you would make sure you had? if you had to leave your house right now, who are the three people that um, you can't live without? Who are, um, like, who are you? Like, what are your qualifications? And they had you write these three items on three little small pieces of paper and then flip them over, mix them up, and then somebody walked around to your table and they would randomly take ones away. So in your mind, you're already at like, these are the three identities I have. These are the three people I have to have in my life. These are the three things that I must have. And Yeah, you pared them down. Yes. And some random person that you didn't know would just take them. And they would take some, some people, they would take more away from others. And you would see it because you'd be sitting at these tables of like six. And instantly you're going like, that's not fair. Like they took five from me and only one from them. And then at the end of the, this exercise, you flip them over and you see what you're left with. And so some people are like, all I'm left with, you know, it was, it was at a church event. So some people are like, all I'm left with is my Bible. They're like, I have no money. I have like, my, my kids are gone. My husband's gone. Um, I used to be a doctor. That's gone. And you're like, shit. Other people, they, it'd be, wow. 
You know, like all I have is like, I'm a doctor. I don't have my family anymore. I don't have any food. I don't have any of this stuff. And it was the simplest exercise um, to see how quickly you can lose everything and how even when you think you've pared down, like it's not. Um, and it's interesting because I see a parallel we, when at, in the event in Germany, we were um, talking to people about like frustrations they have about their business. And quite a few people raised their hand and they were like, how do I trust people to be on my team when it's a project I really care about and I'm passionate and not everyone does things the way that I do. Like, how do I get them to get it? And how do I make sure they're doing it fast enough? And I think it's a good analogy because so often in our work life, we get frustrated with people because they don't do it as fast as we are. They don't get it. Um, there's a rub in like just the daily operations of what we do. But we don't give and we don't give people credit that we're different and that we have these right. different backgrounds and experiences. So if you really extrapolate extrapolate that out into the differences of perspective of like, I have a job, I don't. I have a house, I don't. We can't assume that how any of us do things is how anyone else would like problem solve or process or think. Um, right. And so often it's like, well, I can do this. Why can't you? And it's like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there's, there's this really interesting dynamic of remembering how we're each special but that we're also the same and like finding that that balance and when it's okay to use <laughs> those different applications yeah. <laughs> yeah and I mean when it comes down to it I mean isn't that what makes us so interesting as a society and makes us interested in meeting new people and hearing their differences their stories their different backgrounds and experiences like that was that's what makes it beautiful. But when it comes down to, oh, well, I want you to do things exactly the way I do them, you know, it kind of shifts the perspective and your experience with it, with dealing with other people's differences. So, yeah, on the smallest scale, like when you look at a family, you know, and nobody can load the dishwasher the same way. So, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I can imagine that starting your own law firm isn't something that you can just do with the snap of your fingers. So what pushed you guys to start your own firm and what has that process been like? Um well so for me I I always kind of wanted to be in control of, you know, my own clients, my own cases, my own decisions. Um, but I needed a certain amount of experience before I felt comfortable going off on my own. Um, so, you know, I had a pretty varied um, career. I started off as a DA and then I went into private practice. I joined a solo practitioner up in the Vale area. I did a mix of, you know, civil and criminal stuff, learned a lot up there, moved down to Denver. Ashley and I actually both worked at a pretty big um, law firm in Denver, got a lot of experience there, learned kind of all the different jurisdictions and different courthouses in Denver. And, uh, you know, after doing this for a couple of years, for many years, I just finally got to the point where I felt comfortable and experienced enough to the point where I know I can do this 
on my own and be a damn good attorney and represent my, my clients in a really great and effective way on my own. I'm finally ready. So now let's figure out how to make that happen and put all the other pieces together. And so I also know that I'm not very good at, you know, doing this on my own and working by myself. And I work much better in a team environment. Um, so when Ashley came over and started working at the the firm that I was at in Denver, we kind of got started talking about, you know, do we have the same goals and, uh, you know, future career in mind? And we did. And she and I have, have been really good friends for a really long time. I mean, we were like best friends in law school and it was just kind of the perfect fit, the perfect timing, the perfect, you know, duo. And it's, it's really been great. It's been a great experience, you know, working together and being off on our own. But it's not easy. It's (laughs) It's worth it. It's worth it, but it's not easy. Well, and you know, I mean, when I was in law school, there were a couple of, you know, people that we knew in law school that were starting their own law firms, you know, right after they graduated. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, that sounds so difficult. Like, so scary. <laughs> it's so scary because I don't have the experience and I don't know how you even go about starting a law firm. And, you know, so quite frankly, actually, if you had asked me maybe two or three years ago, you know, if I ever would be starting my own law firm, I probably would have laughed. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, in the end, as Lauren said, it it just was the right timing and the right fit. And, um, you know, we're kind of, you know, there's, there's stuff that always comes up that you don't think about when you're working for a big firm or for the state, you know, or for the county. Yeah. And most of the, most of the struggles that we've had aren't because we're very confident in our abilities as attorneys. So that was never one of our concerns. Our concerns and all the struggles that we've really had to, you know, deal with and learn and overcome since we started this firm have been mostly on the business side. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you how do you open up a new business? Like, how do you file an LLC? What kind of taxes do we need to pay? Things right. like that. Um, and then, you know, the, the IT stuff, like yeah. we used to have an IT on uh, IT person on staff. And now we're having to do Mm -hmm. all of the jobs that all of the other, you know, staff members and other employees of the bigger firm used to help us with. So it's just a little shift in, you know, how we practice, but it doesn't change our, how, how we are as attorneys. Well, I'm excited because I just realized listening to that, that there's potential clients that I aren't helping because I've never thought about offering lawyers how to start their business before. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, we just thought about that. I could, we could actually send some people your way. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> no, because like, um, we were talking before about like just making things easier for people. And that's how my business started. Like, I know how to do that. It's actually really easy to me. So, like, let me do, you do your thing and I'll just help you get there. Um, and I love it because it's just getting to yeah. start new businesses all the time and see people win, which is my favorite thing in the whole world. Huh. We needed one of you. Where, where were you back in April when we started? There you go. Lawyers, that's your new business model. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually. 
actually interesting, though, because, um, you know, one of the things that we've noticed in setting up our business is because, you know, we've talked to different marketing companies and different website hosts and stuff like that. And one of the thing that, things that we've discovered is that being a lawyer and running a law firm is actually very different mm-hmm. than a lot of other businesses and professions. And so, you know, some marketing and web hosting and, you know, things like that, that would work great for, you know, a different kind of business don't actually work as well um, for law firms. And so we've really had to sort of find, you know, people to help us that specialize in law firms and lawyers. Yeah. Um, And specifically, not just in law firms and lawyers, but also specifically for criminal criminal. defense lawyers, because we've, you know, had we've invested in some programs and some management software and stuff for specifically lawyers. But then after a couple of months of using it, we realized this isn't actually helpful for us and what we need at all because it's geared towards civil law. Mm -hmm. And it's totally a different type of practice and different, you know, types of settings and reminders and things like that than the practice of criminal law. So that's been a learning process and kind of figuring out what software and what programs are appropriate and right for our needs. Yep. No, it's, it's, um, I don't, I don't think people realize how, how unique each business really is. Cause it's not even the type of business it's who's running it. You know, the, yeah. I, I just did a workshop for the TV and film and streaming business. It was at a festival, WebFest Berlin in, in Germany. And we had a, a workshop I did was going from creative to entrepreneur, which we could, you know, translate this almost the same workshop going from lawyer to business owner, right? Where right. step one is like, what type of entrepreneur are you? Like, are you the entrepreneur that's there to like see returns and like focusing on the money? Doesn't matter what you're doing. Are you the artist, which is probably where I'd put the person who's a lawyer of like, you don't care about the yeah. money or the deadline because you care about doing it yeah. right. Yeah. And then who's the manager? Like who's the person that cares about the business functioning and it working and it can it having longevity and, and thriving? And so once you know which one you are, like how do you find the other two people? Who the one that cares right. about the profit <laughs> and the money and the person who can do all the management operations and you know, thinking beyond the artistry. And you know, that room was full of people who are artists, they're filmmakers and screenwriters and directors. And it was like to see the light bulbs go off in that first slide of, yeah. oh, for my business to work, I need an entrepreneur and I need a manager. Like it was, <laughs> like, that, alone, that alone was like, was worth, was worth going to see that happen because like no one runs a business on their own. So like it, I love that you guys already knew that you wanted a partnership just for the fun of it, not just for the functionality. Um, yeah. But there's so much. There's so many steps, and so many people make a business that succeeds, and they actually hate it because they're not doing their strengths. They're not doing the things they right. like doing. And, and they're not working yeah. with people who they enjoy being around. Yes. I mean, think about how much time you spend out of your life in work or mm-hmm. in your work setting mm-hmm. and with the people who you work with. Like, you need to be working with one of your best friends. So <laughs> it's, you know, although sometimes that doesn't work. Fortunately, it's worked for us. Yes. But, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, you're already best but. friends who know the value of contract law. So I think that that's yeah. probably one step up. <laughs> Well, we also sort of, too, have 
similar styles, um, you know, and how we approach cases. And, and we knew that kind of going in um, because we did work at a bigger firm together. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, we, we before we started our own business, we have tried a couple of cases together, like been in trials together, met with different clients together, worked on different cases together. So we already had an idea of how we actually worked together as yeah. well as just having fun together. So, But I would definitely say Lauren's more of the like finance <laughs> business person and I'm more of the like networking like mm-hmm. face of the operation. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yes, I will go to court to yeah. see that. <laughs> So obviously you guys are are more than lawyers. So how would you describe what you're doing and what you care about when you're not at work as a lawyer? Well, um, I, I mean, I have an 11-year-old son and actually um, I was a, I recently got married this year, but um, before that I was a single parent and I was actually a single parent when I was going through law school. Um, Congratulations. Brought- yeah, it brought certain, and he was, you know, what, what, like two or three at the time. So, I mean, he, yeah. he was very, very young. And so that brought, you know, sort of its own set of challenges. But so, you know, in, in my free time, um, mostly, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I can go do stuff for him, which is actually part of the reason that I left the public defender's office. I actually really loved that job. But I was just so overloaded with cases that the work-life balance wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in starting my own firm, um, it's been really nice to be my own boss because I can just call up Lauren and be like, you know, hey, uh, you know, Liam's got this school thing that I really want to go to, you know, can we make that happen? And most of the time we can. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's been really great. Um before we but, move on, I, I just want to uh, take a pause because I think we stepped over something that's pretty important. So you moved from L.A. to Denver with a two-year-old yeah. to change your career and go to law school. So yeah. <laughs> most people would just think about that and start sweating. So <laughs> what, like, what made you think, like, this is it? Like, this makes sense? Like, were you from Colorado? Did you have help there? Did you, like, yeah. what, how yeah. did this all make sense in the moment? Well, and, you know, you, you really hit on a lot of it, actually, just now. So um, I was living in California, like I said, as a single parent. You know, part of my decision to go to law school was because I realized, you know, once I had my son, that working in the entertainment field as a single parent just wasn't going to work because, you know, you had to work in the middle of the night and you had to work on weekends and holidays, you know, and you can't get a babysitter, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, So, you know, that was sort of initially why I, you know, one of the factors that went into me deciding to go to law school. Um, But in addition to that, um, I actually was born in Colorado. Um, I have a a lot of family out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of always sort of knew that I wanted to come back to the Denver area and live here for a while. Um, you know, just cause I like the area. It's, and Colorado is 
California and Colorado are probably uh, the two places that I would live. Mm-hmm. Um, they're mm-hmm. they're both, you know, really amazing states. And so I always kind of knew I wanted to live here for a while. Um, and I got into the University of Colorado Law School. I got into a bunch in California, too. But, um, you know, I decided that having so much family out here um, and having that support when I was going through law school was necessary. Um, and I was actually very, very lucky. Um, because, you know, my, my mom was out here. I have cousins, aunts and uncles. I never had to worry about, you know, what am I going to do with my son if I have to, you know, be in the library late at night studying, yeah, um, your parents, your mom specifically is so yeah. supportive. So yeah. I don't know how you would be able to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, that really factored into my decision. And initially my plan was actually to go back to California um, and get a job there after I graduated from law school. But um, I got involved in the public defender system and the public defender system in Colorado is just amazing compared to other states and other counties. Um, they really make sure that everybody gets, you know, proper training and is supported. And, you know, they really teach you what you need to do to be a trial lawyer. Um, and so when I realized that I wanted to be a public defender um, and I was looking at it, you know, the Colorado public defender system is one of the best in the country. Um, so that's why I ended up staying in Colorado. Awesome. Thank you. And um, what about you, Lauren? What are you besides a, a lawyer? You know, Col- for anyone who has not been to Colorado, you got to come out here because but Colorado don't stay here forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but don't say <laughs> everyone is coming to Colorado. It's getting crowded. Um, but Colorado's amazing. I've bounced around in my life too. And I've lived in many different States. I've always kind of been on the search for something and looking for something that I didn't quite know what I was looking for. And I think I found it in Colorado. So I've actually been out here for about 10 years now. Um, and it's just a great state. I mean, it's got a little bit of everything. If you like doing all the outdoor stuff, which, you know, granted, I'm not an expert outdoorsman at all, but I do like to get out there and hike and ski and, um, you know, go camping and concerts. And I love to travel. So that's actually another amazing, amazing benefit of now being my own boss and having my own, um, you know, control of my own schedule is Ash and I can work together. So if I, I was just recently in Peru with my sister, you know, I took about a week and a half off and Ashley covered all of our uh, court dockets and our cases while I was gone, because, you know, now we're in a position where we can do that for each other and with each other, where we can not just live to work, but we can also enjoy living our lives and mm-hmm. doing the things that we like to do. So I feel very blessed and happy <laughs> that we're, you know, finally in this position. Yeah, it's, um, people talk about work-life balance, and I think it's a really silly statement because work is just part of all the other things that go into life. And yeah. I love that you guys have built yourselves a business that you get to do what you're passionate about. You have a team that you enjoy, but you also are built it with already from the beginning, which is one of the big things I coach people on 
of plan it around your life first. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing, you know, because I think I talked a little bit, too, about the reason I left the public defender's office was just I was working constantly and the caseload was just out of control, um, which is, you know, unfortunate. But unfortunately, that's what public defenders are dealing with all over the country. But even when Lauren and I were working at the big firm, you know, it's we still didn't have the luxury necessarily of being able to plan, you know, work with our lives because mm-hmm. we had a boss. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes our boss would be like, well, you have to go do this. And you know? our boss was did not have like his goals and things that he wanted to get accomplished were not aligned with Ashley's <laughs> and mine. And, you know, when I, when I talked about um, how Ashley and I had very similar goals and, you know, plans for our future, one of the things that we talked about before we opened up our own firm was, you know, what do we want to get out of this? Do we want to just work like crazy, take all of the crazy cases and as many cases as walk through our door and make all the money possible and that's going to be our focus? Or do we want to be in control of our our caseload, in control of our uh, you know, schedules, our business, have enough, have the, the proper balance where we are still enjoying our lives and we're not overloaded with work. And we are to the point, cause we, we love what we do, but when you're so overworked, like Ashley was in the public defender system, you stop loving what you do. Yeah. And so, you know, now we, we're, we have our, our goals aligned with each other and we're, really happy with, you know, our caseload and our balance and how things are going. So fingers crossed that it keeps moving in this positive direction. Mm -hmm. Well, and boundaries are so important for whether you have your own business or you don't either way, like really knowing what those boundaries are um, and making sure that there's time for yourself when you, it's easy to dismiss, um, that it's okay to take time for yourself when someone's life isn't on the line. How do you guys, um, you know, make time for your clients and make sure that they're getting what they need as fast as possible and still have your life? Like, does the the flow of the court system help you with that? Or is it, are there choices that you have to make um, within your I business? Think, I think a lot of uh, clients would tell you that the criminal justice system moves way slower than they would like. Yes. Um, and unfor- unfortunately it does. But I mean, I think now that Lauren and I have control over, you know, which cases we take, which cases we don't take, um, you know, and we're able to manage how much we're taking on, that's what's helpful. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a DA or you're a public defender, you know, you have to take every case that, you know, comes your way where the person qualifies for a public defender. Um, And that's important. It is absolutely important. People need to be doing that work. And I love doing that job. But we don't have enough public defenders, Mm -hmm. um, period. Um, And we don't have enough resources to help the public defenders, you know, do what they need to do. Um, So what's really nice um, having our own firm and being able to is, you know, if somebody comes to us and we say, you know what, we just picked up a big sex assault case. We really just don't have time um, to pick up this other, 
you know, robbery case or something like that. Um, whereas when you're a public defender and when you're working under a boss at a bigger firm, you don't necessarily have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't spread ourselves too thin. And I also think it's really important because, you know, Ashley and I, we have our, our business phone numbers numbers are our cell phones. So our clients do have kind of 24-7 direct access to us with our, our cell phones and our emails. I mean, provided we're not in court or in a meeting or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So if, you know, something major happens, you know, we are always accessible. But I think what we do really, a really good job at is managing expectations and really, when we don't hide the ball. We're very transparent and we're very informative. We're explaining everything that they can expect and the different possibilities and because, you know, a lot of things aren't guaranteed and we can't tell them exactly what to expect. But we try to lay it out for them as much as possible and as clearly as possible right from the start so that when the case takes a lot longer than they expect or want and we have a lot of continuances, they don't freak out and, you know, because they've kind of expected it because we've told them what was what was probably going to happen in their case. So I think that is very helpful to start all of our cases and our client interactions on that note. Um, because it's just, it's easier well, to handle things when you understand what you're right. supposed to expect. And a mm-hmm. lot of lawyers actually aren't very good at that. Yeah. Because, you know, they've either been doing it for so long that they just forget that they're dealing with somebody who's not been in the criminal justice system you know, or they just are, you know, too busy. And so they skip over some stuff. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, kind of speaking to what Lauren was saying is that um, if you manage your client's expectations, you know, it makes it a lot easier to sort of have that life and not have them freaking out and calling you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's like any client for any business, right? If you onboard them, and explain how you operate, and this is how it works, and this is the system, and this is the steps. Um, it's a completely, like, that time spent, people often think is wasted time because it's not producing a result. But it is gold because it's preventing people freaking out and having questions later. Exactly. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of lawyers, you know, they're like, oh, well, I'm the professional. You're hiring me, so... Just give me your money and trust me that I'm going to do do everything right for you. And these are really serious points in our clients' lives. I mm-hmm. mean, a lot of them have never been in the criminal justice system before, so they're freaking out. They don't know what to expect. Some people are looking at prison. Yeah. Some people are looking at potentially life in prison. I mean, it's somebody's life yeah. that you're dealing with. You know, and there, I I would agree with Lauren. There are lawyers who are just like, you know, I'm just going to, you know, do what I'm going to do on this case, what I think is appropriate without ever communicating that to their client. And I think a lot of lawyers get into trouble in that respect because then the client doesn't know what's going on. They don't know how you got to that result. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't understand the path that got you there. And a lot of times with criminal cases, there are some choices to be made, right? And the choice is not the lawyers. The choice is the client. Right. You know, it's like, do you want to get into treatment and serve a probationary sentence? Would you rather just serve a straight jail sentence? Do you you want to take this this case to trial? Do you want to accept a plea offer? Like, 
and you have to have that open communication and the, and your client has to trust you. So you can be the best lawyer and get the best results behind the scenes. But if you don't have that line of communication with your clients, they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily going to trust you. And that's a big, a, a big thing that's important in this kind of dynamic. Yeah. And, and most people don't know how the law works. They don't even know how civics works and like what all the options are. So, um, yeah, I think it's great that you guys are a guide through that for your clients, that they're as informed as they can be. And just having that sense of just knowing. It's amazing how if you just know what the options are, you calm down. Like it's the... Absolutely. What you don't know that freaks you out. Exactly. Well, and I mean, think about it. When we're in court, right, you know, the judges and the clerks, they call us counsel, right? Mm -hmm. We're counsel. I mean, and if you think about it that way, that is part of our job as a lawyer to make sure that the client understands what's going on, that the client understands all of the different options that they have. Um, And I think, unfortunately, and not there are other really awesome attorneys in the Denver Metro. There are a lot of really awesome attorneys all over the country, but I think there are also a handful of attorneys that either forget that the client doesn't understand, you know, the criminal justice system the way they do or think that they know better. And, you know, it ends up being really scary for the client. And Mm -hmm. so when Lauren and I started our own law firm, that was one of the things that we talked about before we started our business was, you know, we really want to be client centered and make sure that, you know, they're getting all the options that they're making intelligent choices, you know, and we can kind of guide them, but ultimately they're going to trust you more and you're going to get a better result if they're involved in that process. Yeah, totally. We ask everyone on the podcast where they put themselves on the powerful lady scale. This is a scale zero to 10, zero being average everyday human, 10 being super powerful lady. Where do you guys feel on average? Where do you feel today? And what does the phrase powerful lady mean to you? So this is an interesting question because I think, (laughs) I think that, uh, and this actually just happened to me the other day. So, you know, um, if, if you just ask me in like everyday conversation, I'd probably put myself at like maybe a five. Mm-hmm. But then when I start to look back at sort of some of the things I've done throughout the course of my career and some of the positions I've been in and some of the people that I've helped, I would probably put myself at a nine and hopefully striving for a 10 at this point. I like it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I probably have a similar answer to Ashley. Like, I would normally just think that I'm kind of average and I'm just doing doing my my thing and living my life. And this is just where I and my life ended up. But then if I actually sit down and really think about it and, you know, you know, talking to my family and my friends who keep saying, wow, I can't believe that you opened your own firm. I can't believe you're, you know, well, in for, trial. And, for me, the really big thing is thinking that I've done murder trials. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. 
when you ask, and I've actually had good results, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I mean, that's just our lives. Like that's just you know another another day in Ashley and my life. But then when you actually step back and really think about it, and realize that not everybody's lives are defending murderers in trial mm-hmm. <laughs> or sex assault clients um, or helping your client get a, an apartment yeah. or helping your client get into treatment. I mean, you know, like. I, I mean, and I've had clients actually come back to me after I, you know, a year or two after I've represented them, you know, and a client that I maybe didn't, doesn't even necessarily stand out that much in my mind, you know, but that will come back to me and say, oh, my God, you totally changed my life. Yeah. Like, if it weren't for you, you know, I would be in prison, I would be dead. Um, and that's so when I think about that stuff, it makes me go, oh, yeah, I am a powerful lady. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because we, we do have a pretty powerful impact on a lot of people. And I don't think we always realize it until we step back and analyze and have someone like you asking us this question. So, yeah, I think that I would put myself at the top of that scale as well. Um, and I think it takes a conversation like this for me to actually realize <laughs> what I'm how, what I'm doing and how significant it is. Mm-hmm. Well, it made me, you know, it dawned on me that I haven't even asked, like, what, you know, as powerful female lawyers, are you, are most of your clients male? Are they female? Is it whoever shows up that you want to take on? And well, so in general, statistically, there are more males than females in the criminal justice system. Um, unfortunately that's just the way that it is, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's really interesting because Lauren and I sort of went into, you know, starting our own firm with that thought, like here we are two female attorneys starting their own firm, which, you know, traditionally lawyers have mostly been men. It's been tough for women. I mean, now we're starting to see that shift a lot. Um, and, and now it's, I think, about half and a half males and females, mm-hmm. but it's still difficult sometimes, you know, and I've definitely had clients when I was a public defender that wanted a male attorney, you know. Um, and so when Lauren and I went into this, we thought to ourselves, you know, there's probably actually a population of people out there that need our help that actually would feel more comfortable mm-hmm. with a female attorney mm-hmm. And we've been getting really, really positive feedback from our clients. You know, we've actually had people come up to us in court and say, we think it's really cool that you're two females with your own law firm. You know, so I think that we're, yeah. So, you know, it is something that we thought about going into this. And I think the response has been really positive. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's the same as in everyday life. Like you're going to have some people who just don't feel comfortable having having a female be an important and powerful figure in their lives. Like they feel more comfortable in having men as the powerful powerful figures in the world and society. And you know, you you see that in the legal world as well, and some of our clients and some of our colleagues. But in general, I think a lot of our clients, both male and female really like having a female attorney because, you know, Ashley and I, we're not soft, like very soft personalities, but we do have that side to us. So you kind of get both sides and you, you, I think it's very powerful having a female attorney 
who's strong and smart in the courtroom arguing a case for, you know, for your, for your case Mm -hmm. in trial. And yeah, I think a lot of our clients appreciate that. Yeah. And I can just imagine as well that depending on the type of case that you're defending, just the optics and the support of having a female defender when you wouldn't Absolutely. think that a woman would want to defend the actions that you're being accused of, um, like to bring I mean, that level well, of fairness. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, there have actually both at the public defender's office and at the bigger firm that Lauren and I worked for, you know, sometimes there were strategic decisions that were made and I actually ended up doing a lot of the sex assault yep. because everybody was like, you know what, it's going to be a lot better if, you know, uh, you know, youngish, blonde, you know, little, you know, attorney is the one cross-examining this victim instead of this big, imposing six foot four, yeah. you know, male. Or if, you know, you have a child victim who's very emotional and crying and, you know, sympathetic on the stand, do you want a big, powerful man, um, you know, what could see, what could be seen as taunting this this young victim, or is it a better approach and better optics to have a softer, more gentle approach with a female, uh, you know, questioning that that particular victim? There's a lot of things that kind of go into the decisions about who should try the case and when you have those options available to you, mm-hmm. like Ashley was talking about. Well, I think what you guys are doing and how you're approaching your business and um, justice and your whole lives is just fascinating. I could talk to both of you for hours, and I would <laughs> love to have you guys back um, for our 2020 season because I'm sure that there are so many more things that we could really get in depth on that you guys are passionate about um, that, you know, people want to hear um, having conversations about like things of substance, things that matter and things that allow people to take, you know, big, bold actions in their own life. But um, this has just been such an incredible conversation. So thank you so much for being a yes to powerful ladies and being yes to your own powerful lives. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. We would absolutely love to come back. Um, This has been fun. Yeah. Guys, what a powerful conversation. How awesome are Lauren and Ashley? I am totally lit up about being re-excited about going to law school, and I hope it's inspiring to some of you as well. You know, maybe more importantly, I am left just so hopeful and optimistic and just generally happy that there are women and people like them in the justice system in our country who are out there doing the right thing. They're not just offending people, but working to change people's lives and put them back on a path that will allow them to not only be solid contributions to society, but also to thrive. We need more people like them and we need to be highlighting more people like them. So if you know someone who fits that description, email us hello at thepowerfulladies.com so we can get them on the show next. To connect, support, and follow Lauren and Ashley, you can visit their website, butlertolene.com and follow them on Facebook at butlertolene. All of that plus more, everything we talked about are in the show notes at thepowerfulladies.com. 
If you'd like to support the work that we're doing here at Powerful Ladies, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Leave a review on any of these platforms. Share the show with all the powerful ladies and gentlemen in your life. Join our Patreon account. Check out the website, thepowerfulladies.com to hear more inspiring stories, get practical tools to be your most powerful, get 15% off your first order in the Powerful Ladies shop, or donate to the Powerful Ladies One Day of Giving campaign. And of course, follow us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. For show notes and to get the links to the books, podcasts, and people we talk about, go to thepowerfulladies.com. I'd like to thank our producer, composer, and audio engineer, Jordan Duffy. She's one of the first female audio engineers in the podcasting world, if not the first. And she also happens to be the best. We're very lucky to have her. She's a powerful lady in her own right. In addition to taking over the podcasting world, she's a singer-songwriter working on her next album, and she's one of my sisters. So it's amazing to be creating this with her, and I'm so thankful that she finds time in her crazy busy schedule to make this happen. It's a testament to her belief in what we're creating through Powerful Ladies, and I'm honored that she shares my vision. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.